You're listening to Talking Buildings, the podcast related to all things about the built environment. Here is your host, Paul Angus. Welcome to Talking Buildings. I'm Paul Angus, and joining us today as co-pilot for this session is Sydney sustainability guru, Steve Hennessy. Good to see you again, Steve, and thanks for wearing your trademark white shirt. I wouldn't be the same without it. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so today um, we're in for a special treat. Our guest here today is Howell Davis. And Howell is the SIBSI Technical Director of SIBSI, the Chartered Institution of Building Services Engineers. He leads the technical and policy development work of the institution, particularly focused on the ongoing development of the building regulations and implementation of the Energy Efficiency Directive and other construction-related regulations, directives, codes, and standards. So welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you, Paul. So we're taking advantage of you being here in Australia and New Zealand. Um, for our listeners, um, we've just done the seminar series, which you were part of. Um, you want to elaborate a little bit on that and your time that you've been here? Yeah, I've just spent two weeks travelling around um, Australia and New Zealand, where we've had a series of four Uh, seminars on the anatomy of a smart building and uh, the Australia uh, and New Zealand committee had uh, put together uh, a panel of speakers um, looking at what smart buildings what smart buildings are um, what some of the uh, likely trends in smart building are uh, and tackling some of the the tricky issues like cyber security of uh, of buildings Uh, it's all very well having all this smart stuff there, um, but we do need to try and keep the building secure as well. Mm-hmm. And how did you find it? I've, I've had an enjoyable time. Yeah. Um, we've had a good turnout at each of the events, mm-hmm. and there's been some lively discussion at all of them, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yesterday's um, in Sydney was a packed house. I think it was genuinely standing room only. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a lot of people um, stayed on afterwards to talk and ask questions. Yeah. So I think it's been a, a really good couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know I'm conscious that um, SIBS is based in the UK, and a lot of our resources are there. Um, it's really good to be able to come and spend some time with SIBSI members um, in Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And what do you reckon the take the sort of key takeaways from the event was overall? I, I think I think what was very clear is that. Uh, there are changes coming in our industry. Um, there are pressures on construction and engineering to do uh, to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pressure to deliver buildings that work more effectively, yeah. both for the organisations that operate them and for the individual people who occupy them. Mm-hmm. And we had one very interesting presentation. Um, from uh, one of our speakers um, who's spent some time working with organizations outside the construction sector okay. um, from from an IT and data analysis background mm-hmm. who are looking very hard at how they can come into the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my, in fact, it was my final um, slide, um, said, you know, there is change coming in our industry. Are we ready for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that we're going to see some significant changes. Yeah. Um, and we, we need to be prepared. Mm-hmm. And for the benefit of the people who didn't attend or, or, or international listeners, um, what, was, what was your presentation? What did it entail? I was asked to talk about um, smart, energy-efficient buildings. Um, but I also took the opportunity to give a little bit more of an overview uh, of why I... Th- well, I started off talking about what we mean by smart buildings mm-hmm. um, and then looked at some of these external pressures. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a really interesting... It's now a series of reports by the World Economic Forum yep. um, who have been looking at the performance of the construction sector and have got some very clear evidence that we ha- are no more productive now than we were in 1968, mm-hmm. um, which is not a very good record. Um, and as an industry, we're, we're one of the few big industrial sectors that hasn't really embraced digital technology 
very much yet. Okay. You know, I know people are doing BIM and you know uh, and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but you look at what's happened in industries like aerospace and mm-hmm. the automobile industry. Um, you look at the um, the automation mm-hmm. that has swept through the automobile industry. We're not there anywhere near. Um, and in fact, again, one of the other speakers. Um, used the McKinsey Digitization Index to show that we are uh, the only sector that we have done more to digitize than is farming and hunting. Ah, okay. um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, that was part of my challenge. Look, we've, we've got to embrace this. Yeah. Um, and then started to look at what that would look like. Yeah. Um, started to look at what that was going to look like um, and what some of the implications are for, mm-hmm. for our sector. Brilliant. Did you want to add, Steve, in that? I was just wondering what you could digitise as a hunter. <laughs> well, that thought went through my mind. but uh, and, and interestingly, um, I know one or two people who are in the farming business, um, and they do quite a lot of digital work now. Um, so when they send a tractor out into a field... That tractor has a small computer on board. Mm-hmm. It's linked up to GIS. Okay. So the tractor knows exactly where it is in the field. And if it's planting, it's got data on the um, nutrient levels and soil quality mapped across the field mm-hmm. because they've done the soil sampling on a previous occasion mm-hmm. and they know how much seed to put in across the field based on that condition analysis of the soil. Oh, wow. Now, that, you know, that's quite smart mm-hmm. use of digital technology. Yeah. Um, you think it's just getting a tractor and drive around spraying some seed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if they can do that in farming, um, you know, just think of the opportunities that there are in the built environment. Mm. Um, and not just in the way that we build things, but also um, in operating buildings. I mean, the building bit's relatively quick, mm-hmm. but you know, the building we're sitting in will be occupied and operated for decades. And if you can make this building operate more effectively mm-hmm. using digital technology, you've got 50 years potentially to reap the benefit. Mm-hmm. Anything to say, Steve? No, <laughs> I'm, just, uh, I'm still pondering the man in the tractor. Oh, OK. <laughs> So, obviously, coming from the UK over to Australia and New Zealand, have you noticed any key differences um, on the topic of, of the seminar series itself? But have you noticed any key differences that are more prominent maybe in the UK or, or more prominent here in Australia and New Zealand? I'm not sure I've seen too many differences. I, I've, mm-hmm. seen, I've seen or I've heard about um, similarities. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in the UK, we have a fragmented industry. Yeah. Um, we struggle to get people to work together. Um, and I understand that that's a little bit of a problem out here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have I have noticed one significant difference. Um, I think we pay a lot more attention in the UK to the thermal performance of building fabric um, because we do worry more about keeping buildings warm in in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't you know it's a different climate out here, so. You know, those concerns aren't quite the same, uh-huh. um, and I think it does mean that some aspects of the way buildings are designed is a bit different. Uh-huh. Um, you're more interested in air conditioning than we are. Um, we we do more heating, and I mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit limited over here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, some some differences, some similarities, and I sense that when it comes to the smart building question. Um, you know, you're you're looking at how it might work out just as much as we are. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about building performance? Do you see any differences there? Oh, absolutely. Um, it hit me straight away walking down St George's Terrace in Perth on the morning of the first seminar, and I went past a number of Talese signs, and every single one of them told me what the neighbours' rating of the building was. Now, apart from the fact that we don't have neighbours in the UK, at least we don't yet. I know there are um, some efforts underway to to get neighbours adopted or a variant of neighbours adopted in the UK. Um, 
We have nothing like that. You you go walk down a London street, um, and you'll see to let or to lease, and you won't see any evidence of what the energy performance is. And in some cases, you'll have to work quite hard to get it out of the letting agent mm-hmm. um, if you want it. So the focus on, and I know Neighbours is primarily energy, but there are other aspects. The focus on that here is much, much clearer um, than it is at home. Um, and I've also detected there's quite a lot of interest in health and well-being. Um, the well-building standard came up quite a lot in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're looking at it and people are interested in it, but I sense you may be a bit further ahead and there may be a few more people actually prepared to get their buildings rated over here. Mm-hmm. So de- definitely real interest in building performance. And do you think that's changing or will change in the UK? Uh, very much so. Um, the fact that some of the um, blue chip property companies in the UK are looking seriously at the prospect of a variant of neighbours in the UK um, suggests that there's real interest at the top of the industry. Um, And I think there are a lot of people in the UK who get quite frustrated with buildings that don't perform the way that they're meant to. Um, And that has to change. And I think there's another pressure which we're going to have to tackle We saw the publication of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change special report that came out in September, which makes it very clear that if we don't want a very uncomfortable few decades ahead for our children and our grandchildren, Mm -hmm. then we need to do something, and we need to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, existing building stock is going to have to perform a whole lot better if we're going to get anywhere near to meeting the carbon emissions targets that are fundamental to uh, achieving a 1.5% average temperature increase um, in global temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've really got to get with it. Um, We we haven't really got much choice. Mm -hmm. Unless you live in Australia, in which case we have the choice to ignore the IPCC. Well... um, I'm being facetious. I I know you're being facetious, and actually, (laughs) yeah, but actually, Steve, that I mean, you you know, you could say that um, the the United States, at a federal level, has decided to make that choice, Um, but it's not being supported by many U.S. states. Um, The state of California, which I think would be in the group of eight industrialized nations if it were an independent entity, um, California isn't backing off because the federal government is, um, and nor are many cities and and other states across the US. Um, And I can't help note that um, there was a by-election here in Australia last weekend uh, because there was a seat vacated by the previous Prime Minister, um, and that was won by an independent candidate who took a strong line on climate change. Now, I don't know enough about it to know whether that's what won it for her, um, but it's notable that that was a significant campaign issue. So, yes, independent countries, to some extent, could say, yeah, we're going to ignore that, um, but in democratic countries, will their electorates let them wear it? Um, and actually, the global environment is not broken up into independent sovereign areas. Do you have the, the, the same um, federal, local issues in the UK? Um, well, you, you may be aware that there's been increasing devolution in the UK over the last 20 years. So Scotland has its own parliament uh, and, the, and Scottish government um, Wales now has its own assembly and uh, separate elections. Um, Northern Ireland has its own arrangements, um, which uh, have been in a state of hiatus for a little while. But in each of those four home nations, we have a separate building regulations regime. Uh, now, Scotland has had its own arrangements for a long time, but 
um, and Northern Ireland uh, have as well, but have generally followed what we do in England. Uh, but Wales is is heading off on its own path on one or two issues now. So uh, just as here you've got the Commonwealth Government and six states and the Northern Territory, we've got um, the UK Government and we've got four separate sets of building regulations to work with. Sounds good. Um, where do you think the the technology in smart buildings is going to go in the next five, ten years? That's a good question, Paul. <laughs> um, I, think, I think we're going to see a lot more data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my concern is that that's going to be driven by um, what I'd call because we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and my worry is that a lot of smart stuff will come along and people will be persuaded to put it in. Um, And actually one of the things which several of the speakers in the seminar series were very clear on, Mm -hmm. you need to understand what you want smart technology to do and why you're using it Mm -hmm. and then make sure that you get the technology that will solve the problem you've identified. And my worry is that we will see quite a lot of smart technology mm-hmm. that is a solution looking for a problem to solve. Yeah. Um, now, there are things we can do, um, you know, better metering of buildings, for example, um, more energy, uh, more, more monitoring of what's going on in buildings. Mm-hmm. It need not just be energy related. Um, it could be air quality related. Yeah. It could be around occupancy so that you've got some idea how... Um, intensively your buildings being used Mm -hmm. or not Mm -hmm. Um, you know these are all things that could be very useful yeah Um, we're also I think going to see a greater push to use building information modeling and digital models of buildings which if it's done well Mm -hmm. could make a real contribution to asset management Mm -hmm. if you've got a good digital model of your asset yeah it's so much easier to manage it, to maintain it, to keep it operating, to meet um, user needs. Um, And I think we'll see all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And inevitably, we'll see a few people coming along with um, bright ideas that don't really work, and Mm -hmm. some people will... Will get caught out. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's a, that's the sort of danger as well. Because when we're when we're designing buildings, sometimes it, it can be that um, the technology you're using is going to be outdated in two years, or it's going to be superseded, isn't it? So it's trying to keep on keep on the front the front foot, isn't it? You know. Yes, and again, one of our speakers on the seminar series um, talked very much about that, and yeah. and actually put up. Um, a curve mm-hmm. um, and was suggesting y- you get a new idea mm-hmm. and it it's the latest thing that's going to happen yeah. and interest in it increases greatly mm-hmm. um, and then they actually try to implement it mm-hmm. and some of the difficulties emerge and perhaps it it's then superseded by the next new thing mm-hmm. um, and you really need to wait until two or three years down the line to see, has that bright new idea from two or three years ago really taken off? And is it really delivering what it promised? Mm-hmm. Um, or um, has it disappeared into oblivion? Yeah. Now, the trouble is, for that cycle to work, they've got to have some early adopters who are prepared to take the risk. Mm-hmm. So if we're all risk averse, it's not very good for innovation. Um, but the people taking a risk do need to understand that they're taking a risk mm-hmm. um, and be prepared for that particular technology not to pay off. Mm-hmm. And what's SIBSI doing in this space? Are we developing any guides or any sort of, um, I don't know? Um, we're, we're just about to start work on revising the, um, the SIBSI guide to building controls, mm-hmm. which um, is a little dated right. and, uh, and does need some work. Um, and we're... we're talking to other people, mm-hmm. uh, to trade bodies in building controls. Um, and I, I think we might be following up with one or two of the organizations who helped out on the, uh, on the seminar series as well. Uh-huh. So that's, that's just beginning um, to get off the ground. Yeah, um, that's good to hear. 
And and we, we you know we've got a challenge because trying to write guidance for the industry, you want it to be thorough and robust. That's absolutely essential, um, and you want it to be quick. And trying to be thorough, robust, and quick can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. And in some of these technology areas, you really have got to be quite quick. Otherwise, you write a very robust piece of guidance on something that's no longer um, you know, the, the, the latest way of doing it. Uh-huh. I mean, one of the things that uh, came out of the seminar series I thought was very interesting was um, forget the BMS that you have in the building because it's not going to exist in that form in a very, very near future. It'll all be software mm-hmm. driven in a different way and, and may not be any of the companies that we're used to dealing with. But no one knows. No one knows if that's how it's going to go. They think it might be how it goes. Mm-hmm. You write the guide today... Uh, around uh, such things as BACnet and uh, other protocols, and then tomorrow something totally different comes along. I don't know how you... You'd need to be very agile and constantly updating, I suspect. Well, again, we we need to be careful how we write guidance at SIBSI. And I often say um, we need to focus on telling people um, what they need to do and not get into the detail of how to do it. So you need to have clear control strategies. And actually, you know, that, that doesn't change. Um, and we may need to give some guidance on what that actually means. But exactly how you go about implementing those strategies um, is likely to change from year to year and possibly even more frequently than that. So we need to try and give people the overall guidance that helps them to do the right things and be very clear that they then need to go and think through how they implement that. And that will change from project to project because technology changes, clients are different, they'll be working with different industry partners. Um, and you know, the SIBSI guides are not there to give you um, a step-by-step set of instructions on how to do something. Mm -hmm. Engineering requires people who can think and solve problems. Mm -hmm. Um, The guides are there to help them think and guide them to avoid um, making the most obvious mistakes, Um, but they're not a substitute for thinking and solving problems. It was interesting because we were talking about this earlier before recording this, so we're talking about um, um, with the guy from Multiplex and he was sort of comparing how SIBSI guides are maybe not relevant here in Australia, but when you're talking, you were saying that we're looking to get more people involved in, in steering committees for doing um, the updates to guides in the future, aren't we? So that's a that's the key yes, takeaway. I, I mean, I, I, think, I think a good chunk of the SIBSI guides probably will be relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, there are one or two where I know there'll be, there'll be more that is UK-centric yep. than, than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, with with a SIBSI membership of getting on for eight hundred people in Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, that's a tidy chunk of our membership. Yeah. Um, we do need to make sure that when we're updating guidance, we're getting input from here, mm-hmm. um, so that when we're talking about the what, we are talking about what's that are relevant over here, mm-hmm. um, and when we're coming to produce lists of further reading or produce examples, um, we're not just using UK further reading and UK examples. So I'd like to think one way we can use new technology within SIBSI um, is to get a bit more input to SIBSI guidance from this side of the world. Mm-hmm. I think the, the last time that we did that, we, we actually managed to stop one of the guides in its tracks. Um, I refer to uh, TM39 and the metering Metering standard. How are we going with that one? <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't say you stopped it in its tracks. And actually, th- th- this just really illustrates the point. Um, by coming and asking for feedback from Australian uh, practitioners, um, and I'm conscious that you do quite a lot of metering work that's connected with the Neighbours Scheme, um, the feedback we got was, hang on a minute, this guidance doesn't actually meet our needs because it doesn't address these issues um, and it needs some more work doing on it. Now, if we're trying to provide robust professional guidance, 
Um, we can't say, oh, well, I'm terribly sorry, that, that's very interesting, but it doesn't meet our publication schedule, so we'll carry on and publish something that's not robust and doesn't... That, that's not what a professional institution is there to do. Um, so um, you have slowed us down, um, and we're now working on that. Um, and Steve and I had a conversation about this earlier, Paul. Oh, yeah. uh, we're, we, we are going to run the... What we hope is... well. We're going to run the near final version back past um, Steve and one or two other um, colleagues out here to try and make sure that we have addressed the, the concerns that have been raised. That's good to hear. Yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, so um, I think if anyone's interested, we will be making the slides available. Is that right for the um, seminar series? So you, you're, we'll, we'll get them on the website. My understanding is that all of the speakers have agreed yep. to their slides being um, put up on the web. Yep. Um, the, the drawback with that, of course, is that you, you get the slides, but you don't get the commentary that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. So um, if anybody looks at the slides and thinks, gosh, I, I wish I'd been there, yeah. um, I would say, well, I think you did miss something really useful. Um, and uh, there are plans for a seminar series next year. Yep. So don't miss out next year. Come along and get the slides and the speaker presentations. Can't get better than that. Nice sales pitch. Alrighty, thanks for that. Um, we're going to change the dynamic now a little bit, and we're going to do a rapid roundup. So um, I'm going to hand it over to Steve. So he's going to ask you a few random but fun questions. So just um, take it, don't take it, just take it in your stride, and whatever comes in your head first. It's rapid fire roundup on talking buildings. Apparently, the only reason I am am here actually is to ask uh, what I am told are little fun questions uh, to find out a little bit more about the real you. So, um, how these questions fit into that, I don't know. But let me start by saying, <laughs> if you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? I quite enjoy fish. Mm-hmm. I think if I if I had to go for one thing, I'd probably go for fish any particular fish any particular fish i might need some advice on what it would be sustainable to choose um if you know if i'm limited to this for life i'd like to choose one that might that might not run out before i do <laughs> in that case it would have to be quite a big fish um what's your favorite color what's my favorite color well i think being welsh i have to say red red Oh boy. Finish this sentence. I'm happiest when... I think I'm probably happiest generally um, when I'm either in church or with other people that I know from church. Singing by any chance? Um, I do enjoy singing, but that's not all of it. And I, and I do on a Sunday morning, uh, if, if I'm in the UK, um, I, I go to the Welsh language church in the city of London, um, and we do all our hymn singing in Welsh. Ah, really? So that's, that, that's my Sunday morning routine when I'm in London. You want to give us a blast? <laughs> Not now, no. <laughs> if you could go back in time but only had five minutes, what would you change and why? Hmm. I think I'd like some clarity on that question. When you say, what, could, what would I change, uh, does that give me carte blanche to change anything? I think we can be generous and say yes. It's your time machine. <laughs> I think, if I'm honest, I think I'd quite like to uninvent Twitter. Uninvent it? Uninvent Twitter. Why is that? Well... I know we ought to take the view that it's merely a medium and media are neutral and it's how the medium is used that matters. Um, but I, I, do, I do wonder what Twitter has added that is valuable mm-hmm. to the sum of human experience. We will tweet about that after this. Uh. <laughs> and we'll tweet this podcast, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where is your favourite place to contemplate life's uh, most challenging dilemmas? Ooh. I, I think 
when I can be there, it's probably North Wales and Snowdonia. Uh, at the top? Well, no, not necessarily at the top of Snowdon. In fact, if, if you said to me, take me on half a dozen really good walks in North Wales, mm-hmm. I don't think Snowdon would be on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you were a particularly keen walker and were happy to go up Snowdon via the Cribgoch Ridge, um, which, is, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but there, there, are, there, are, there are lots of good walks in North Wales without going up Snowdon. If you found yourself on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire hot seat and you needed to phone a friend... Who would that be and why? Hmm. Well, of course, the correct answer is it depends on what the question is that you need some help with. Um, I'd be very tempted to pick up the phone to one of my old university housemates um, who was and is a very bright individual and would be most likely to be able to help me out. Um, although he, he, like me, probably wouldn't be too strong on some um, modern cultural questions. Especially if they revolved around Twitter. <laughs> we'll tweet that as well. <laughs> if, you, um, if you could have a superpower just for one day, what would it be and why? Well... There's a lot wrong in the world, um, and I think I would, I would want to be able to do something that would make the world a better place. So what would that be? Well, what would that be? Um, I Actually, I'm going to give you one that might sound a, a little um, off the wall. Um, if I could arrange for the Bible to be translated into every language on earth... That's what I would. That's what I would want to do. In one day. Well, it's a superpower. <laughs> Done. Done deal. Name a place in Australia or New Zealand that you've not yet visited but would like to. I I think I'm going to say, um, the the west coast of New of the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, which is supposed to be beautiful. Um, it's uh, it, you know, it's rugged. It heads down towards Fiordland. Um, I I'm really looking forward to to the opportunity to go and see what that's like. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> if you were um, singing in the car or shower, what song would you probably be singing? Oh, I think that's another. It depends one. What your mood? Um, well, yes, it it, it, it it is a bit. Um, if it's what music would I be likely to have on in the car? Um, th- I mean, these days I quite like having classical music on in the car. Hard to sing along to, though. Um, but that can be hard to sing along to. If it's got to be something I've got to sing along to, I'd probably go back a few years and pick Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Um... We're wrapping it up as we uh, started on the food theme. If you could rid the world of one type of food, what would it be? Oh, I think I'd have to say fast food. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, well, it's not exactly the most healthy of, um, of offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we're trying to be light-hearted, but there's a serious side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you look at what's... Hap- I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the UK we've got real problems with obesity amongst the younger generation. And a lot of it is down to the availability of unhealthy food. So if I can rid the, food, rid the world of one food, I'd like to get shot of, of fast junk food because it doesn't do us any good. Well, thanks very much for that. Um I don't think we've had a guest that's contemplated the questions I know. quite so much as, <laughs> as you. So uh, thank you very much for that. Let me hand back to you, Paul. Nice one. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Howell. Um, just going back to um, what we were talking about earlier, you're, you're also here in another capacity. Um, you went to Adelaide and you went up to Brisbane um, to do some presentations um, to local subject chapters there on, um, on the Grenfell Tower. 
Um, just wonder if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Um, and I know that you're on various panels and whatnot. You can't speak too much about it, but it'd be good to just get a handle on your presentations, maybe to start with what you were, what the message was that you're conveying. Well, we were talking about the seminar series, mm-hmm. and that ran in Perth, Melbourne, Auckland, and Sydney. Yep. And Sibsey has also got members in Adelaide and Brisbane. Yep. Uh, and it's not really very fair that I come over and visit the Sibsey members in the larger centres and I ignore Brisbane and Adelaide. So mm-hmm. um, I've been travelling around. Um, and I know um, David Robinson mm-hmm. in Adelaide is, is a fire engineer yeah. uh, and has been very interested in um, what can be learned from Grenfell Tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, when when David and I were talking about what I was going to talk to the, uh, the Adelaide uh, Sibsey people about um, we, we thought it would be useful to talk a bit about Grenfell mm-hmm. um, and the, the Brisbane people followed up on that now I say talk a bit about Grenfell um, what I was really doing was talking about the review of building regulations in the UK yeah. or in England particularly mm-hmm. that was triggered by the Grenfell fire mm-hmm. um, because um, you know, we, we need to be mindful that Grenfell Tower costs 72 lives, um, and there is a police inquiry ongoing, there Mm -hmm. is a public inquiry ongoing, um, and, you know, a lot of that's being reported publicly, Mm -hmm. um, and I've been, I was very clear with people that I wasn't there to talk about those things, Mm -hmm. but separately to those exercises, there's been an independent review of building regulations and fire safety in England, Mm -hmm. um, led by Dame Judith Hackett, who is an eminent engineer in her own right. And um, she's drawn some quite challenging conclusions about the regulatory regime, Mm -hmm. both for building buildings and then operating them after they're complete. Uh, And she's... um, challenged the way the industry works. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's raised some interesting questions about the competence of professionals um, and others in the industry. Uh, and she's suggested that there needs to be fairly significant reform of the regulations and guidance themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this is quite a far-reaching report. Um, and she was very clear that Grenfell was a consequence of systemic failure mm-hmm. and um, in her interim report she described the the current arrangements as not fit for purpose and in her final report she talked about the regulatory system being broken mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're not you know, they're not um, oh there's a little bit wrong here uh, that just needs a bit of um, fixing mm-hmm. you know, there is a need for significant systemic change in the way that we build and operate buildings. Mm-hmm. So how, how have you got involved in, in this uh, inquest? Um, I haven't got involved in the inquest. No. And in fact, um, there won't, I believe the inquest has been formally opened mm-hmm. and adjourned and will not um, resume until all of the other outstanding inquiries are conclu- formally concluded. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've been involved in is the independent review, okay, yeah. um, and that's because um, I'm a member of something called the Building Regulations Advisory Committee in, the, in England, mm-hmm. which advises the Secretary of State on building regulations. And um, one of the things that Dame Judith asked government to do was to look at the structure of the guidance that we have mm-hmm. that supports the, the building regs. Yeah. Um, we have 23 approved documents mm-hmm. um, which give people guidance on how to meet the regulations. Yeah. Um, Dame Judith had some fairly firm views about, uh, about those guidance documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was asked to chair uh, a, an expert group that mm-hmm. looked at that in some more detail mm-hmm. in the early part of this year. Um, and I've also been involved in, in some of the other industry groups that have been pulled together to look at specific mm-hmm. questions that have emerged from her review. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think it was really interesting. We had a we had a roundtable conversation this morning here, and um, 
And one of the key things was that, you know, any building over 25 metres is you know, sprinkled. Um, but it's going to change. One of the guys was saying from the Fire and Rescue New South Wales, that's changed into four levels, wasn't it? Three or four levels. Um, but you were saying earlier as well that there's no, um, there's no, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, know, you don't, you would, basically in the UK, you don't put sprinklers in. And it's like, you know, would, that, would have that made it, well, it would obviously made a difference, wouldn't it, um, in, ter- in terms of this tower. But what's, why, why is, why is sprinklers not in, in, like mandatory putting buildings over a certain height? I, th- I think it's important to say that whether sprinklers would have had any impact in Grenfell, you need to go and look at the expert reports that have been compiled mm-hmm. for the independent, uh, for the public inquiry. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I, don't want, I don't want to discuss that because that's ongoing. Yeah. Um, we have had a long-running um, resistance to fitting sprinklers in in some buildings Mm -hmm. um, that many other countries around the world would sprinkle. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly one of the concerns has been around the cost effectiveness Mm -hmm. of of putting sprinklers in. And I think if you go back um, many years, there was probably some concern about the efficacy. one of the consequences of Dame Judith's review um, is that the part of our building regs that deals with fire, part B, um, is going to be reviewed fully. Um, and I think the whole question of sprinklers will come up then. Um, and um, Sibsey will obviously need to take a view. Um, and I have a suspicion that I know what that will be because I've talked to some of the experts within the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, we will have a, a responsibility to articulate that when there's a, a call for comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, I'm quite sure that the um, advisory committee will have to take a view. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll need to be ready to contribute to mm-hmm. that. Yeah. It's one thing to have these regulations. Um, I have read there's some conjecture uh, in, in, in the case of Grenfell as to whether the cladding that was installed actually complied with the regulations, but putting that to, to, to one side for the moment, this whole issue of general compliance, it's certainly been raised in Australia recently with certain things that have happened. Is that an issue in the UK as well? Uh, yes. Um, one of the other things that Dame Judith picked up on, uh, I think she described it as a as a weak culture of compliance and enforcement. Um, the the people who are responsible for enforcing a suspected or against a suspected breach of building regs um, work for local authorities, and. Um, they find it challenging to get the resources to take enforcement action because the penalties for non-compliance are so weak. And so there's a reticence at local government level to spend a lot of money on enforcement when the the penalties are going to be relatively trivial. Um, And Dame Judith is quite clear uh, that that means there is a bit of a culture of non-compliance. And she's firmly of the view, and I would wholeheartedly support it, that that does need to change. Um, but I, I, you know, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's about regulation and compliance all on its own. Um, there is a culture in the industry that appears to think it's okay not to bother about compliance. Well, actually, I think that's got to change. I mean, issues of compliance go right back to the design stage. Someone has made a decision to use a product or, or, or do something that, that is not in accordance with the codes, and then someone has approved that, and someone has built it, and then someone is operating that building. So there's a number of steps in there. Where, where is it falling down, or is it at all stages? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can pick on anything as being a particular problem, although, um, again, the review does, does flag concerns around product substitution. Mm-hmm. So the designer may have carefully designed and specified a compliant product, 
Um, but um, when, when the job gets to site, um, they can't source the product that's been specified, um, or they can source it, but somebody offers them something that is allegedly equivalent for a lot less money. So they get the allegedly equivalent alternative, and nobody bothers to ask, well, what are the fire implications of making that change? Or what are the thermal insulation implications of making that change? Um, or, you know, whatever the questions need to be. Um, and product substitution is rife in the industry uh, and is certainly contributing to some of the non-compliance issues. Um, and actually, I, I think we also have a little bit of a problem around um, procurement, where people are so concerned to get a low price that they don't want to be prescriptive about what products are used. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something will be clad in something of a generic description, or, um, you know, the, the piping that's used, there'll be a generic description. Mm -hmm. And then when it goes out to bid to subcontractors, um, there's a free-for-all, and people can come back offering all sorts of things without necessarily even having access to all the information they need to know whether what they are proposing to use will deliver a building that complies with the regs. Because at the end of the day, a cladding panel doesn't comply with building regulations. A building to which that panel has been affixed mm -hmm. has to comply. Yeah. Um, you know, a brick doesn't comply. When it's put into a wall, does that wall meet the structural requirements? Mm -hmm. And again, Dame Judith's very clear uh, that we need more systematic and systems thinking. We need to look at buildings as systems... Um, and actually, we need to shift our thinking away from, is this building compliant with the regulations, to have we delivered a building that is safe to occupy? Mm. But, but what about the um, the buildings that are out there that have already been built, we've already got this cladding on, what's, what's happening in that space? Well, in the UK, there are um, over 450, um, I believe, uh, that was the number when I last checked the, the government website. Um, about 300 of them are in the public sector and government has got plans to deal with them yeah. um, and government is talking to owners of those in the private sector um, to uh, encourage them to deal with them appropriately. Okay, yeah. Because we, we were talking earlier and um, one of the guys from the Fire Rescue New South Wales was saying that there is some sort of database or some sort of register that's happening perhaps in, in Australia. Um, is that something that's going to be happening in the UK? So if you've got a building, you, you've got to register your building, um, how high it is, what's, what, if it's got any cladding, what measures you've taken, that sort of thing? Yes, both New South Wales and Queensland have very recently introduced legislation that requires owners to report um, certain types of building. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't yet been proposed in the UK, um, but I'm sure that UK regulators are paying attention to what's happening mm -hmm. uh, around the world, um, and it may be felt that that's an appropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's not just cladding, of course. The, the whole heap of uh, building materials that we have where we're hearing stories now about their, their quality, their long-term um, uh, ability to deliver what they're designed for and so on. Is, is that an issue in the UK? Well, I think, I think it, the issue is the integrity of our supply chain. So are the things that are being delivered to site for which representations are made that that product meets certain um, product standards and passes certain test requirements? And I don't just necessarily mean fire, but performance tests of, of any kind. Mm -hmm. um, can people be sure that the product that's delivered actually meets all the requirements that the person who specified it thinks it needs to meet, um, and and is that testing and product certification regime robust? Uh, because questions are emerging about several products around the world that were thought to be 
uh, suitable for certain purposes, and now questions are being asked about whether that's correct. Mm -hmm. So, um, there, and again, there's a whole section in Dame Judith's report on the issue of product testing mm -hmm. and quality assurance. Um, and, and again, perhaps people need to be paying a little bit more attention yeah. um, to what is going in, into buildings um, in all parts of them. Mm -hmm. So what's um, SIMSI doing in this space then? So we've got the Fire Engineering Guide. Um, is that any plans for that to be updated? Uh, yep, SIMSI Guide e, um, was actually at a fairly advanced stage of being revised when the Grenfell Tower occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, we're fairly near now to finalising that and publishing the, a new edition of Guide E mm -hmm. um, in, in the near future. Awesome. So if anyone wants to get a hold of a copy of that, how do they do that? Well, SIBSI members have the advantage of being able to access all SIBSI guidance um, online through the SIBSI Knowledge Portal, mm -hmm. um, and that's available to you wherever you are in the world. Yep. Um, printed copies will be available, mm -hmm. um, and, and they'll be uh, available to purchase. Uh, again, uh, SIBSI members get a preferential rate. Mm -hmm. um, and nowadays, we also sell PDF copies um, to non-members um, for a, a reasonable price. Awesome, that's great. And that but applies well, to all our guidance. I think the answer, though, is to join join SIBSI and get advantage of all the publications. Well, yes. I mean, I, I know you do some work with um, with cost consultants, Steve, um, and the, uh, I mean, the simple um, cost-benefit analysis mm -hmm. is that affiliate membership of SIBSI costs about £131 a year. And um, that will you, you will get your money back if you purchase uh, two um, printed copies of the publications, um, because the non-member price, you know, almost any two of the catalogue will get near to that. Um, but actually, that £131 secures you access to the Knowledge Portal for the year and to all of our guidance, um, which I, I think is quite genuinely, a, a very attractive offering. Mm -hmm. um, so you're right, Steve. The answer is to, to become a SIBSI member. Don't delay, join today. That's it. <laughs> so just before we wrap up, um, Hal, um, I just wonder if you've got any um, a message to any of our um, SIBSI Australia New Zealand members or, or committees um, that you didn't get a chance to um, meet or to see? Well, I think, I think my main message is that, you know, as a professional body, SIBSI is is committed to go back to the beginning of our conversation mm -hmm. to delivering buildings that perform uh, and meet the needs of their um, users and occupiers. And if, if there are members around uh, who have got ideas about how we could do that better, mm -hmm. um, then um, you know, we'd be interested to hear. Brilliant. That's great. Alrighty, well thank you very much for joining us today and travelling halfway across the world to uh, come and speak to us in this podcast. Um, it's been really great and um, thank you Steve for joining as co-pilot. Um, I'm sure everyone will agree that it's been really entertaining, um, educating and um, it's been a really fun session as well. So hope you got a lot of it. I'm Paul Angus, stay tuned in for our next podcast and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Talking Buildings, a Sipsy Australia and New Zealand production you can download previous episodes or subscribe to future ones by searching Sibsi Talking Buildings. That's C-I-B-S-E on your favourite podcast app.